In the Rio Grande in south into Mexico, there's a small, plain-looking fish that reproduces by cloning itself. It's usually just a few inches long, and every individual is female. This fish is called an Amazon molly, and it originated as a hybrid between two other fish species. The offspring are clones, genetically identical to their mothers. Weirdly, the female mollies still mate with males, but they mate with males from another similar species that's fully sexual. Those males end up not contributing any genetic material to the offspring. Their sperm simply triggers the egg to start developing. A scientific paper described this as sexual parasitism. The Amazon mollies are essentially tricking males of other species into giving up some of their sperm. To most people, this probably seems like a really odd way to reproduce. Since these fish are just copying their DNA over and over again, you would expect lots of mutations to creep in over time and cause all kinds of problems. But somehow, these populations aren't going extinct. People have recently looked at the genome of these things, which have probably been something like 100,000 generations without sex, and they seem to be doing just fine, even though theory predicts they shouldn't really. So there's, you know, this is where we're sort of reaching the boundaries of knowledge. Like, can I really say why they're doing so fine? That's Hannah Coco. She's a professor of evolutionary ecology at the University of Zurich. Among many other things, she studies the evolution of reproductive strategies like sex. We talked with her about the costs and benefits of sex. She recorded herself on her phone, so the audio doesn't sound perfect, but she had some great things to say. In general, scientists think of sex as a way to generate variation in offspring. One reason might be to combine mom and dad's genes into new combinations. Another might be to weed out mutations that naturally show up when genomes get replicated. Asexual organisms don't mix up their genes much, which Hannah says can cause trouble. All of the variation that sex creates can be helpful, but it also comes with some big costs. The first major cost is that sexual organisms give only half of their genes to their offspring. The other big cost is we males in general. Why make one type of organism that serves mostly just as a sperm reservoir? Males can also be an evolutionary pain in the ass by competing with each other or with females, which wastes resources that could otherwise go toward babies. On this episode, we talk with Hannah about the cost of sex, how they evolved, and why sex persists anyway. We discuss hermaphroditic snails, microbes that have sex once every 10,000 generations, and crustaceans that mate only when conditions get bad. All of these examples tell a pretty compelling story about the evolution of sex. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. decided to start by just asking uh, a very broad question about who in across the tree of life has sex. So which, which are the groups that have sex and which are the groups that, that don't? Well, almost everybody um, in the sense that sex is a very prevalent reproductive strategy, you could say. Uh, to make babies, you very, very, very often have sex. Um, but of course, you know, humans think that, you know, aren't those things like synonymous? And of course, they are not because it's also possible to just replicate. If you think about bacteria, uh, they are probably the most familiar group that, you know, they, they can just divide and keep dividing and, and they do all kinds of other things. They, they sort of borrow genes from their environment and so on. But that's not really the same thing as two parents coming together and then um, from those two genomes you create a baby. Yeah. So, so I think it's easier to envision uh, multicellular things having sex, right? Mm -hmm. So plants, animals, multicellular mm -hmm. fungi. Uh, are there unicellular things that have sex? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh. so one thing is that, you know, terminology-wise, if you think about bacteria doing all kinds of exchange things, is that really sex or not? Some people call that sex, some people don't. If you define sex as, you know, the sort of two parents and then a sort of proper exchange between just two and then uh, you create a baby, then sure, there's a lot of unicellular organisms uh, that are bigger than bacteria. So we talk about eukaryotes. They have a sort of proper cell nucleus and so on. They don't need to be multicellular to have sex. Uh, they just do it just like us. Uh -huh. But but if they're if they're unicellular, then of course there's not sperm and eggs because those would be no no multicellular organisms. Right? No no sperm and eggs are sort of a male female thing. So one mm -hmm. thing you have to realize is that you don't actually have to have males and females in order to have sexual reproduction. You can just have well you can sort of produce gametes that are not sperm and eggs. They are just sort of two little things that intertwine and fuse and um, produce. I, I keep calling these babies, but the technical term is zygote. Uh, <laughs> the, babies is good. Babies is good. We can use that. Yeah. 
So, so you can create a baby from two identical things, and then um, you don't because you don't have the sperm and you don't have the egg. Um, you don't actually talk about males and females. They don't have fathers and mothers, but they still have two uh -huh. parents. Uh -huh. Great. So we're, there's so much to, to go at there, but we're going to try to keep this in a flow. It's hard sure. to organize yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. these ideas. This is a concept that's laden with jargon and terminology. It's I really know. Tricky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so maybe let's continue to, to stick at this broad level and talk about the benefits of sex and why maybe it evolved in the first place before we get into the Oh, that's a, that's a big, big, that's big a small question. question. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we'll just go now for 45 minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. We could. We could do more. Um, so, yeah, well, sex has something to do with variability for sure. I mean, if you create, if you create babies without sex, then basically you create a copy of yourself, um, give or take a few details. And that can be very efficient in the short term, but in the long term, that seems to be some sort of an evolutionary dead end. So um, the sort of genetic details, they're quite complicated and people have, you know, looked at this in a lot of mathematical detail and they have also looked at it experimentally. So for example, if you put yeast cells in some sort of challenging conditions, uh, let's say they have to deal with temperatures they're not used to or maybe salt in the environment or something like that, which everybody does when they're baking, then um, often the adaptation to new environments is easier when you do it sexually than if everybody is just trying to invent the new ideas in their very own lineage. So that seems to be a very big benefit. So it's a way of generating variation that then selection can act on. Yes. On the other hand, of course, it's also risky because, you you know, who tells you that the variants are going to be great? Um, you will also create things that weren't actually what was needed in the environment right now. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so can we dig down into the that the benefits of variation in a little more direct way? What's it for? I mean, what's the purpose of what is the benefit of so much variation? Well, I guess you could say adaptation, but of course, you know, these lineages, they don't they don't actively think that, yeah, now I'm going to adapt to a new environment because I'm not I'm not sure what will happen. Um, but at the same time, if you abandon it and there's a lot and lot and lot of organisms that have abandoned it it looks like over longer periods of evolutionary time they don't actually do that well so they actually do get weeded out hmm. so um one of the there's a couple of concepts that i run into a lot reading about uh, uh sort of theoretical papers on the evolution of sex and that is the red queen hypothesis mm -hmm. and muller's ratchet mm -hmm. um, can you say a little bit about those two yeah, theories yeah. So for they, the evolution of sex yeah so they both are they're kind of related in a, in a sense because both are at some level about the kinds of genes that you need to live in the current environment. Uh, but the Red Queen here emphasizes more the fact that I should probably first explain where the metaphor comes from. So Red Queen is the character in Alice in Wonderland um, who tells Alice that, you know, this is a world where in order to stay in the same place, you have to run as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. And uh, the metaphor is very much loved by evolution biologists because it's kind of like everybody else is adapting, including the parasites that want to harm you. So therefore, if you don't do some sort of rapid change yourself, then you're going to be so outdated that you're, you know, you're, you're losing in the evolutionary battle. Um, so it's about what sort of genes are needed. Miller's um, ratchet is another way to think about what kind of genes are needed at the moment, but that's more about... There, the idea is more that there's some sort of ideal type that you would like to just keep intact. Um, but there's this problem that deleterious mutations happen all the time. So your genome mm -hmm. gets degraded, so to speak. Uh, bad things happen to it. And if you just keep, like, uh, there's an old book that has this perfect metaphor. If you're trying to create the perfect chair and you always copy the design of the chair from the previous chair, some sort of errors will creep in. And if you don't, stop and think what you should as a chairmaker um, do to these chairs, you will just get less and less functional chairs. Uh, so that's kind of mm. like the ratchet idea that once mm -hmm. you have lost the original perfect chair, you cannot very easily recreate it anymore. So, so the idea there is that if you have a small population of asexual organisms mm -hmm. that occasionally a deleterious mutation will mm -hmm. arise, yep. will perhaps by drift take over the entire population. Exactly. And then yeah. the formerly better genotype is lost forever because right. there's no going yeah. back. It's, it's like the yeah. best chair is lost and then you can't quite remember yeah. how to make it. That's the, yeah. that's, that's the metaphor. 
Art, so far you win the award for the most jargon-laden sentence of the, uh, of the morning. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to get back to the chairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get away from the chairs, but yes, thank you for drawing me back. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I think we've sort of alluded to the, the timescales over which this happens, but um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the, the lineages that over long periods of time seem to not fare so well compared to uh, sex or asexual lineages mm-hmm. seem not to fare not so well to to uh, the ace the sexual one so <laughs> how, how yeah. does that how does that work i mean over how do you intermingle sort of shorter time scales with these really long time scale yeah sorts of well things? that's a definitely interesting question because it also um i mean the different researchers like different time scales so to speak in the sense that you know what they choose to study if you study something like macro evolution uh, where you're really thinking about evolutionary trees and you know what happened you know, millions of years ago, and what's happening now? You can, you can actually look at um, the uh, the the technical term is the tippiness in the trees. Um, so that the tips of an evolutionary tree they are often asexual. You don't get really solid branches where an asexual lineage has arisen a long time ago and it has given rise to lots and lots of species now. So you can you can literally look at the timescales that way. Or you can be somebody who goes and looks at, um, let's say, some interesting snail work, for example, has been done in the red queen context where this battle between the asexual and sexual type, it happens all the time and the parasites come and the parasites go and different kinds of parasites come. And then it's a much faster, you know, you can even during a PhD project, you can do exciting things. But also you might say that, well, isn't this a bit like comparing apples and oranges once you are looking at a system where clearly maybe by chance you know these two types are almost equally fit otherwise they wouldn't coexist whereas the other one might be species in entirely different places and they are sort of doing well over a certain amount of time because they are not together and then at, you know at some point something bad happens to the maybe more likely the asexual one and both views are necessary i would say uh, both are probably uh, looking at the same problem but they are sort of using a different kind of torch to shine light on them Mm-hmm. So with the um, the Red Queen sorts of ideas in the short time scales, that one's, I guess, maybe the mechanisms are, they're clearer or they're more intuitive or both. Um, in the case of these really long time scale sorts of things, what are the common mechanisms that are invoked? Well, I guess, uh, you know, the, like, like the wretched kind of ideas um, might very well happen. The 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 thing that is that you know if you talk about very long time scales then of course you know we can't take a sample every generation and start looking at the genome um, they might somehow I mean if if I if I speak popular science I I tend to say that they they somehow lose the sort of evolutionary steam to keep going but whatever that means in a particular setting is it that you know climates were changing and they lack the adaptive potential or the you know like with the yeast experiments you put some novel whatever salt into the environment and they just don't know how to cope with it whereas the sexual population mm-hmm. invents the necessary physiological machinery a bit quicker what happened in real life when these things went on it could be biotic interactions which means that there could be a new predator with new tricks or a new parasite and so on um, it could be any of the above but it's hard to pinpoint the causality you know why did this lineage die if it now is dead it's it's hard to study now it just seems right. to be a pattern that they, as I said, uh, you know, the very long-term strong branches don't seem to come about asexually. Yeah. <laughs> that can cope with loss. I just, I just recently looked again at um, this uh, trends in ecology and evolution paper by mm-hmm. Olivia Judson and oh, yeah, Benjamin Normark. Yeah. Yeah. It's called mm-hmm. "Ancient Asexual Scandals." Yeah, and, it's a good title. And overall, Scandals. Yes. Yes. And their their point is that in fact there are some lineages that appear to have persisted asexually for very long periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years, and and that that poses a, a kind of evolutionary mystery to current theories of the evolution of sex. So so mm-hmm. I guess how how long can some of these lineages persist and and have some of them found a way to thrive and diversify despite, you know, the problems? Yeah, so um so the question is a bit how long do you have to be without sex to be a true scandal? I mean in the case that <laughs> <laughs> that that um that Olivia was talking about um, there, there's been some news news about that. Uh, there's there's actually a current biology paper published three years ago now uh, by Tanya Schwander, which is called "The End of an Ancient Asexual Scandal," and it's talking about these <laughs> things. 
because there's a paper, um, uh, De Bortoli et al., uh, where they show that um, it might actually not be so true that they are totally asexual. Um, they There's some ways of exchanging genes with each other. It's not what biologists love to call canonical sex, you know, the, the proper, you know, two parents for each baby kind of thing. Um, but, you know, this sometimes it's called parasex or kind of unconventional, non-canonical sex. Things like horizontal gene transfer where that bacteria do as well. And, you know, maybe they just diversify using mechanisms that are just not quite as typical uh, for the organisms that we tend to study more. Um, on the other hand, I do know that these results, they are they're actually quite hotly debated at the moment because some people say that, you know, maybe your experiments were just a bit contaminated and maybe, you know, this and that. And so it's an ongoing research field. Hmm. That So the, yeah. the scandal's not totally dead yet. They're, yeah, well, yeah, you could. It's, it's an ongoing research field, let's put it that way. Um, the, what was that? I had another point. Um, yeah, the, the time scales. I mean, I, I said that uh, the depends on how long you have to be without sex to be really scandalous. I mean, there can be pretty long um, uh, stretches of time. Uh, like one of the organisms that I really love it is the Amazon molly. It's a little fish that kind of has and has not sex at the same time. Um, genetically, it doesn't have sex, but it still needs sperm to kind of touch the eggs in order for the embryo to start developing. And because this is a female-only fish, they don't actually produce any males. So where do they actually get the sperm from? I mean, that's a bit of a problem. So they, they kind of borrow it from a neighboring species or a kind of a species that lives in the same area and looks very much like them. And it's a, it's a totally fascinating system. But there, people have recently looked at the genome of these things, which have probably been something like 100,000 generations without sex. And they seem to be doing just fine, even though theory predicts they shouldn't really. So there's, you know, this is where we're sort of reaching the boundaries of knowledge. Like, can I really say why they're doing so fine? Right. Is there maybe sometimes a bit of genes coming from the sperm and so on? You know, it's it's fascinating. How, how do they trick males from a neighboring species to, to uh, meet with them? That, there that, should be very strong selection on those males to avoid that. Yeah, right? I, I, I have actually worked on this question because it's a good question. Yeah. Um, well, firstly, it's quite complicated because uh, the... Asexual females, um, they arose via hybridization of two sexual species. So by default, they look very much like the females of the sexual species because they're kind of related to them. They sort of sprang out of that interaction. So the males can't really easily tell between uh, their own females who are productive for them and these kind of wasted opportunities. So if you think about it from the male perspective, if you start really scrutinizing every female for the risk that, you know, this might be the wrong one, probably a faster male of your own species will mate with the good ones um, a bit quicker and you, you probably lose out. Um, also, as long as these Amazons are not like the majority of the population, you don't actually lose so much. You lose a bit of sperm, a bit of time, uh, but you can still right. mate with the correct ones. So it's it's actually not that strong, uh, the selection so the pressure. the total costs are low. The total costs yeah. are low until bad things happen if they get too common. But then, you know, it's kind of like yeah. it's very hard for selection to see the uh, sudden switch in what's important and what's not. So yeah. it's, it's a bit of a stupid system, but, um, but it, yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. So Hannah, you um, is there anything about the environment in which these mollies live, or general generally these asexual lineages that they live in relatively stable places? Wouldn't that be the expectation? Is, is that um, been you, checked out? Well, um, so how asexuals arise um, is very often through what I just said, hybridization. That is quite commonly something that. Two related species, uh, related in the sort of evolution timescale um, way, um, they come together and, you know, maybe the hybrid wouldn't really work, you know, the chromosomes don't align properly and all those kind of things, um, except if you actually don't even try to do the sexual reproduction in the next generation. We know that hybrids are often um, infertile and all that. But if you can mm -hmm. just sort of bypass all those problems by saying that, well, everything seems to be a bit wonky in these gametes, but, you know, let's just sort of skip the whole sex thing and just copy, that seems to work much better. So very often hybrids um, end up forming these asexual lineages. 
But where these asexuals are found now, when we just sort of go out in nature and look at that, they actually quite often are in environments that are almost like the opposite uh, from what you said. Um, <laughs> often range margins, you know, go more north, higher mountain tops, harsh environments, uh, things like that. And there's several different explanations for this, but one of them is that um, they don't need a mate to reproduce. And that's great if you're trying to invade right. somewhere where it might actually be quite hard to find anybody. Also a very broad question. We've already used these terms male and female, and I think everyone has an intuitive idea of mm-hmm. what that means. But, o- but o- how do you define? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So let's talk about that wrongness. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are males and females? Right. So uh, the biological definition of a male is simply that it produces sperm, or if you're a plant, pollen also counts. Um, and what defines a sperm versus an egg is simply it's the smaller one. So it's really just a size difference of the gametes. Um, and um, that's it. I mean, it has nothing to do with things like sex chromosomes. There's a lot of species that don't don't even have sex chromosomes. Like it might be temperature dependent. If you incubate the egg at a high temperature, you get one sex and at a low temperature, you get the other. Um, there's also a lot of hermaphroditism in nature. Um, and there we actually do talk about males and females, but they just happen to be in one organism. So this happens when the same thing has both testes and ovaries, so it can produce both sperm and eggs. Um, or if you're a plant, uh, you can um, kind of get fertilized and produce the pollen at the same time. So, so why are, are the sexes most often binary? Why aren't there why aren't there three or more sexes? Okay, um, that question actually comes in two parts. Um, one is. If you have the two unequal gamete sizes, like sperm and eggs, why don't you have a third size? But another question is, uh, if you don't, if, if you skip the size-based definition, and if you just ask, are there different types that can mate with each other, then you get a different answer. So if one is just talking about the different sizes, we don't really find an advantage to being an intermediate size if the situation has already diverged that you have the tiny sperm and the big eggs and that has to do with competition to fertilize the big ones it's very hard to have an advantage if you're a bit bigger and then the parent can produce a bit less of them because you can divide your energy into a fewer fewer packages if you make them bigger so it's kind of like a mathematical argument why the intermediate size doesn't really work so uh-huh. The question is very different, though, if you look at these systems that don't actually have males and females, they just have what's called mating types. Like I mentioned already, yeast, um, there's also a lot of fungi, there's well, other fungi, um, there's lots of unicellular organisms where, you, you know, instead of the boy and girl definition, uh, we just call them plus and minus or sometimes A and alpha and so on, uh, because, you know, it's not really a sperm egg thing. And there, in some systems, you actually have more than two. Um, there are cases with three, there are cases with seven, there's cases with actually, you could say hundreds, it's kind of like a compatibility spectrum. And do all of them have to come together? No, or is it just two different mating no, types? No, 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 this is two, okay. yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's preventing you from mating with your own right. type. got it. Are, are there yeah. cases in which more than two types have to come together to form a zygote? Um, my, I would like to say no. I just recently saw something that I felt like I need to download this and read this, yeah. <laughs> but that, that came a bit just, just um, because idle prurient yeah. interest. So <laughs> exactly, it was kind of like triparental uh, something something, but I, I I literally didn't have time to yeah. read it yeah. yet. So I'm I'm hedging my bets here. But. <laughs> Good. Another topic that you work but, a lot but, on. But, but I think as a, as, as a coordination problem, I guess it, it, it has clear disadvantages. Um, yeah. If they, instead of two coming together, you need the right. third one, and it has it to always be three. It magnifies the problems of having to find sexual partners, right? So, That's right, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. 
So another um, another big picture sort of item with regard to, to sex. Mm-hmm. What came first, multicellularity or sex? I mean, you did say a lot of unicellular organisms are having sex, but how common is that, and what was that that sort of origins? Which one? Which one first? So sex, in in the way that I use the term, it very much is associated with. Um, the rise of eukaryotic life, which means that these are the sort of cells that we have. They have a proper nucleus. They are not like bacterial cells. Um, But that kind of life stayed unicellular for a really long time. Uh, So that question is easy to answer. You don't need a multicellular machinery to have sex. And even to this day, these unicellular creatures, they very, very often have sex. At the same time, they're very often facultative sexuals, which means that they don't need to do sex every generation. They, they sort of have the option of going for it or not going for it, depending on conditions. And they actually very often have sex when life is somehow a bit tough for them, uh, which is also interesting. Hmm. That's interesting. Can you can you maybe talk us through, I think one of the, the flagship examples there are the, the Daphnia? Yeah, they are multicellular sort of though, uh, but I'm happy to talk oh, about them. Point, yeah. uh, so, so Daphnia are one of the sort of bigger organisms that um, that are really cute. You can see them with a naked eye, and you can see that you know this is a female, this is a male. At least if you have a microscope, you can tell them apart. And um, they are a typical example of facultative sex, where as long as conditions are fine, it's the summer, food is plentiful, densities are not too high, um, everybody is female, and they see no particular reason to deviate from that. So they just produce clutcher eggs, and everybody develops as a female. But if food runs out, or if they get some sort of sense that the season is coming to an end, like the winter is approaching or something like that, then um, they start producing males, they start mating with these males, and they produce eggs that come in pairs, and they're in this tiny little shell, which looks like a mini, mini peapot, and they actually go dormant. And when winter really comes, or a drought, or you know, food totally runs out and so on, these are the only things that survive. So they're called, um, you can call them survival structures. And that's actually quite common that sex is related to situations that are just a bit too tough to survive. If you think that, you know, whatever I have been doing as an adult organism, that will work forever. I will just keep copying myself. If you have got some sort of evidence that this might not work, then uh, you produce these things that can withstand all kinds of things. You can you can make them dry out. You can make put all kinds of chemicals on them and, and so on, and they're just fine. Hmm. They wake up then a bit later. So how do you – this is interesting to bring it back to something you said earlier that oftentimes we're finding these asexual lineages at the edge of the ranges and mountaintops. And yet under these circumstances, sort of there's a there's a – disproportionate number of uh, sort of sexual, you know, the, inv- the investment goes in the direction of sexual when the yes. environment is getting yeah, yeah, tough. Yeah. So. Yes, so, so that was, um, that's, that's a very interesting apples-oranges comparison because in, in one of the cases I was talking about organisms that can do both and they, in the same population, keep the capacity of doing both, like the Daphnia. Uh, but then the other one is how well do those lineages do that have completely kind of got rid of the idea of sex? And they, um, there it seems like they might get outcompeted in the core areas of their distribution. Uh, that something about the competitive environment there is a bit too tough for them. Whereas in these marginal areas where they manage to spread on their own maybe faster, um, that's where they are at least arriving first. Whether they can also stay there and withstand the uh, kind of like, you know, the wave of sexuals might be coming behind them. Um, that's an open question. I actually have a PhD student working on this at the very moment. She's modeling this. Um, where a lot of these asexual ranges at the moment, uh, they are in places that used to be covered by ice during the ice age. So whether this in some cases is still an ongoing slow wave of the sexuals catching up or whether the asexuals really have a distinct advantage there so that they can hold their territory even when the sexual uh, spread there. That's that's what she's trying to model at the very moment in her PhD. Is she going out and doing field work on these things too, or is it a, a modeling modeling project? This is this is a modeling project, but she's certainly talking to a lot of people who do field work as well. So uh, we try we try to keep it realistic and, and and also vary all these things like, you know, are we talking about hermaphrodite? Are we talking about a thing where males and females are separate and so on? 
Well, um, I, I guess I'd like to ask, sort of switch gears and talk about now the costs of sex. And let's start with some of the, a couple of the really big ideas that have define the way the field has been going over the past couple of decades. And, and one of those is um, John Maynard Smith's idea mm-hmm. of the twofold cost of sex. Yeah. So, so what is that twofold cost? So that cost is basically, it has also been called the cost of producing males, which is maybe a more accurate way to actually phrase the cost, um, partly because it's not always exactly twofold. But the idea there is that Firstly, you have to realize that now we are talking about a subset of organisms only, those that that actually do have distinct males and females. And in the tree of life as a whole, this is actually rarer than you might think. Um, But they're very familiar cases to us, so so let's talk about them. So there, if you make an assumption, and this is a surprisingly good assumption for many species, um, which is that males are not interested in parental care at all. Uh, what they are interested in is the success of their own sperm um, as the gametes that will fertilize the eggs, uh, because there will be most likely a lot more sperm in the world than there are eggs that can be fertilized. So there's a lot of competition among these sperm. So males will, in this model, invest all their energy in trying to get paternity, which becomes a zero-sum game. Uh, one male's win is another guy's loss. And if none of this energy uh, that is spent in all these fights and you know build, developing antlers and you know what, whatever huge test is and so on, um, if none of that energy is actually really helping to create more young or better young in the next generation, that is all on the shoulders of the female, then it means that half of all the energy that the population is getting from its environment is kind of wasteful. Zero sum game effort is always wasteful by by definition. So if this assumption set is true, then an asexual lineage that doesn't produce the males and everybody's a female and everybody does sensible things like feeding the young or developing larger eggs so they can survive or more eggs, then the asexual lineage will grow twice as fast. And that's why these cost of sex is a twofold one. And that just seems like a massive, massive advantage, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But um, as, as, as you heard me say, there's quite a lot of assumptions, like sort of certain idealized, really strong sex roles in the population, mm-hmm. which, 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 you know, for your typical mammal or something like that, it might even be true. Uh, for a lot of other systems, maybe yeah, it's less yeah. so. We want to ask you a little bit about those complications uh, later, but mm-hmm. let's, let's sort yep. of stick on this uh, sort of broad view first. So. Marty, mm-hmm. do you want to ask about George Williams? Yes, one of my favorite uh, evolutionary biologists. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Hannah, can you tell us something about um, genome dilution and maybe how it fits in with the, the cost of sex, twofold cost yeah, of sex? Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting one because at first sight, it actually appears the more general explanation why sex might be costly. But it actually, when you start thinking about it, you get into headaches that that are intriguing. Um, so, so the dilution is just the fact that if you produce babies sexually, you kind of have to accept that half of their genome comes from somebody else. So that's a dilution of your genetic interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty much by definition twofold, um, give or take some mitochondria and things like that. But it's actually a bit complicated when you think about uh, this. Well, one one argument that goes a bit against it is that Assuming that sex is determined by a gene that makes an individual you know, willing to have sex when uh, it's time to reproduce, then it will presumably also mate with another one that has the same kind of copy. So evolution biologists talk about green beard genes um, <laughs> you know, in, a, in a funny way, like, you know, what if there's a marker like a green beard? This is, this is, a, this is one of the silliest metaphors that we use. <laughs> and then, then you only do things with another individual, positive things like reproducing, uh, who also has this thing. Then that gene, that those copies are actually not getting diluted at all because you just sort of choose the, the, the next one. On the other hand, of course, you know, who says that the sort of frequency of sex is controlled by some sort of very simple genetic mechanism? People have built all kinds of models like, you know, is it a dominant allele? Is it a recessive allele? What if it's about, you know, like in many facultative sex organisms, really, it's about a rate of sex, like how 
if conditions are tough, how bad do you have to feel before you realize that, well, I should probably go and do the next bout sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the mathematics actually depends quite a lot on what you assume the genetic control of sex to be. Uh, in hermaphrodites, it's again a bit different because you can be parthenogenetic, like non-sexual with your female function, but you might still produce sperm and fertilize others if they are willing and so on. So it's, it's quite system specific how the dilution argument applies. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds daunting. I mean, is there any sort of something like a consensus about the, or, or maybe just the most common way to, to think about the genetic architecture of sex now? Um, well, in order to think about the architecture, um, you of course need to have a comparison. I mean, you need to have a lineage where you have both sexual and asexual forms. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, you know, sometimes the asexuals, they are formed by hybridization, so the, so the, the entire genome is quite different from the, from the parental species. But there are cases where you actually do have um, relatively simple transitions. Uh, there, there's even, I mean, there's crazy things like contagious asexuality. You can actually <laughs> become asexual phrase. if your parents had sex and the lineage is combined in a particular way, um, <laughs> which, which is really wacky, uh, but can work. Um, and it can work precisely well, there's actually different ways for it to work, but maybe the easiest one to think about is that if you're a hermaphrodite and you turn asexual via your female function, so you have the asexual gene, so to speak, but then you also still produce sperm, and this sperm can then sort of go into others and their babies become asexual, at least via their females. Um, there's also other ways how this can happen, but the but that's one of them. There's also... For example, there's a rotifer, which are these sort of tiny little um, organisms in ponds, where it has been shown that it can really be a recessive allele that leads to asexuality in offspring um, if they are homozygous. That's again jargon, but it but it basically means that you have two copies of this recessive allele. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you have just one copy, then you do sex like everybody else, but um, a certain fraction of your offspring will then if you mate with another one of the same kind, um, will turn asexual. And yeah, that's pretty fascinating as well. And are these alleles true green beard alleles in the sense that the individuals that have them can tell when other other individuals have no, them? I no, mean, I, I, I mentioned the green beardness as a, as a hypothetical yeah. ex- example that happens if both of you need to be willing for you to even sort of start engaging in this sexual act. And then it sort of functionally works like that. But how exactly it works when you have homozygous and heterozygous and so on, like in this recessive allele case, you don't have to recognize anything whatsoever. It's just that if two heterozygous meet, then automatically 25% of their offspring will yeah, be asexual. Right, so it, just sort of, it just sort of leaks into that pool, mm-hmm. so to say. So to say. Okay. Um, we, we keep talking about hermaphrodites and... Um, yeah, they're pretty common. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I wanted to ask about yeah. one group that doesn't seem to have them very much, if mm-hmm. at all, and that's yeah. the insects, which have otherwise yeah. been spectacularly successful in an evolutionary sense. Mm-hmm. So so why don't insects have hermaphrodites? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> um, especially because they're sister groups, like, you know, there's all kinds of shrimps and um, other, other kinds of things that are, evolutionally speaking, relatively closely related to insects, and they, they do this just fine. <laughs> Um, and they have sex changers and all kinds of fancy things that insects don't do. Um, there's only one tiny group of insects um, called scale insects that do hermaphroditism of sorts, but it's so amazing and crazy that it almost doesn't count, where the the adult individual has kind of like the female bits of its own, but then it also has this sperm of its own father that is still sort of it's still there from the these extra sperm are still there from the time when she herself got fertilized, and then and and it's kind of like wow and it's so crazy that you know nature is just amazing, <laughs> uh, but it's not it's not your normal hermaphrodite, um, and why insects never, I mean I can only speculate they often have, you know they do all this metamorphosing and all those kind of things but then. Not everybody does anyway, and and so on. I mean, it's just 
I, I mean, this is something where I really have to say, I just don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. All right. Somebody should do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how to answer a no question. I mean, that's oh, a never question. That's, that's much harder to, than to answer something sure. where it at least sometimes yeah, happens. Agreed. Um, I mean, here's another maybe equally hard question, but you know, being a hermaphrodite seems like, in a way, the best of all worlds. Uh, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're equipped for sexual reproduction. You could have sex with anybody. Um, so why isn't everything a hermaphrodite? Probably because um, being a successful male and being a successful female, they are somewhat different things. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to, I mean, the metaphor that people often use here is, uh, the jack of all trades, master yep. of none, kind of thing, yep. and um, people have actually tested this. I mean, my my favorite study on this is actually on a little shrimp species, where it, it's it, well, okay, it's it's a shrimp where everybody starts as a male, and then at some point you switch, but you don't become a female, you become a hermaphrodite. So you're still a male as well, but um, now you have the female function added to your body, so to speak. And um, if you keep this shrimp alone or in very small groups, they turn hermaphroditic faster. Um, whereas if you keep them so that uh, they have a lot of hermaphrodites to play with, um, then they actually stay male for longer. And when people have looked at the success of males when they're competing with hermaphrodites in the sense of being male, uh, because the hermaphrodites can have the male function as well, it turned out that the males are actually, being a pure male, you're four times better at being male, as in actually succeeding in fertilization competition, um, than the male part of the hermaphrodite. That was a long and complicated sentence. Yeah, but, but that's maybe super you, interesting. You, you, huh. yeah. so, so that implies that, that being a successful hermaphrodite depends in part on the chance of encountering somebody else from your own species. Yes, and so if that's absolutely. very rare, yeah. then you need to arrange your physiology so mm -hmm. that no matter who you meet, you can mate and mm -hmm. reproduce. So for example, parasites uh, that go into the insides of some host species where there's not necessarily a guarantee that you will find another one of your species. Uh, they're quite often hermaphrodites, so that, you know, when another one comes into the intestines, then, yay, things can happen. go back to the the cost a little bit because I'm you know I'm an empiricist and um, the the paper that Art and I read that sort of framed um, the conversation we've been having was predominantly about mm -hmm. cost and the the piece that I, I think the the major point that that you and your co-authors make there is that um, it's really tough to get the, yes, the numbers absolutely. for these sorts of things so 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 can you sort of outline what the hang-ups are and maybe a system or systems that have gotten us this closest, you know, mm, the, yeah. the systems that have gotten closest so far? So, um, yeah, hang-ups. I mean, I mean, there's, every time you start thinking about this, you realize that, you know, your, your fantastic experimental setup, it has an element of apple and orange comparison to it, and that makes it hard, because ideally you would like to measure the cost in the following way. Um, the asexual, oh, sorry, the sexual one is doing something that is costly, time-consuming, whatever. Um, and because of that, it would have to be by that much more fit otherwise, um, so that both of them can reach the same population growth rate or something like that. But you realize that, um, you know, the firstly, you need to have these two species. Um, you need to think about, should you measure their growth rates like when they're separately or maybe when they're together? Or let's say if you, for example, have males and females, and one of the costs of sex in those systems is that you know, the males deplete the food supply, so there's less left for the females. So do you allow, allow the asexuals to suffer from that? The males are just sort of around them and eating what they could have otherwise been eating. Or do you want to sort of think about it as in, you know, they, 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 they form these totally separate uh, pools? Um, you also have to deal with the fact that these asexuals, they might have for example, a reason by hybridization, or even if it was a simpler mutation that led to them, they often have some sort of vestigial traits that come from a sexual past, and they might be maladaptive in the current asexual context. 
and if they haven't got rid of those traits yet, then I guess you could say that, well, that's a true diminishment of the cost of sex then. But on the other hand, you might also be interested in how well the asexuals might be doing eventually. And so on and so on. So it gets complicated. And is there, I mean, what's the, the system that's there that's sort of been most illuminating? When we were talking earlier about the, the costs, I mean, you, you alluded to the fact that, you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. going to need a system that sort of has particular characteristics and by and large don't, those don't exist. And mm-hmm. because of the point of uh, sexual the, the value of sex in some sense, maybe the asexual lineages mm-hmm. have been, been outcompeted. So w- what are the systems that are there that have been most insightful so far? Well, I guess um, everybody starts talking about snails <laughs> at some point. Of course. Uh, because there was, um, there was a really fantastic paper uh, that actually is titled The Twofold Cost of Sex Experimental Evidence from a Natural System. And this is about these snails that have uh, sexual and asexual females. Uh, Gibson et al. is the paper. And um, they literally measured the increasing frequency of asexual snails when you put them in natural mixed populations, I should emphasize, of sexual and asexual snails in sort of outside pools uh, that they created for this purpose. And um, yes, they got the idea that, you know, it, it pretty much well, very well matches the twofoldness idea there. Um, but of course, at the same time, when you go to I mean, this is a system where the sexuals and asexuals are easy to measure because they they are they sort of coexist. Um, but if you try to say, you know, what is the cost of sex in humans or something like that? You know, we are in a lineage where sex has been obligate for the longest time, and you would have to come up with what is the hypothetical asexual female doing? How well is she actually managing to you know raise the babies and all those kind of things? So it it automatically becomes relatively hypothetical at that point. No less interesting, though, um, but there's a lot of systems where you don't even know how to begin um, to address the question, except through the modeling of the ancestral yeah. ideas. So so two other costs that you have discussed in the paper are um, the cost of meiosis itself in terms of time and complication and the cost mm-hmm. of recombinations. Yes. And yeah. those are both sort of abstract things. So can we just kind of yeah. delve into those in, in simple mm-hmm. language? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so meiosis, uh, in simple language, that's the thing that you have to do with your cells in order to produce gametes. Um, you, you kind of split the genome in half, and um, and then later you have to orchestrate the whole thing with this other gamete that is coming in, which is not part of the meiosis anymore, but it sort of follows from it. Um, and that is a complicated process. It takes time. It takes a lot of time from the perspective of a unicellular organism that is trying to do it. So um, the, the sort of normal cell division, the mitotic one, um, that is a fairly quick process. Uh, but this one can take, you know, in some systems it's five times longer. It can to, take to do meiosis instead longer. of mitosis. And yeah. if you have somebody yeah. who's trying, yeah, to do meiosis exactly, yeah. Um, and if you're somebody who's sort of trying to replicate fast in a, on a petri dish or out there in the soil or something like that, uh, your microorganism, um, this is an absolutely massive cost. It probably matters much less for, let's say, humans because you know you you do all kinds of things anyway in your life. You do the growing, you do the feeding, and you because you're big and multicellular, your ovaries or testes can do some other bits other things uh, at the same time. So it's probably much less relevant for the big things we think about, but it's probably huge if you go and to And so the there's evidence ones. that that really constrains the evolution of, of sexuality in some microbial lineages? lineages? Well, well, it's certainly interesting. It's, it's interesting that a lot of these microbial lineages, they, they do use sex, but uh-huh. really a bit okay. reluctantly, like it might be once in 10,000 generations or, you know, something like that. So the normal thing uh-huh. is certainly uh-huh. to go for the efficient uh, one. And as I said, very often when conditions turn nasty, like food is running out or the temperatures are unpleasant or whatever source like, of okay, unhappiness in their sex. lives, uh, then yeah. it's sex is the answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, it's actually, it, 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 I think it's lovely to think about it because as, as long as things are fine, you can be optimistic that whatever I do yeah. is best for my babies as well. Yeah. So let's just copy. <laughs> I'm awesome. Uh, you know, why deviate from this? Um, and then when it's kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure about this anymore, that's when you start doing all this. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, and then the related thing, well, maybe not related, but cost of recombination itself. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's just explain first what is recombination and why might that lead to a cost? Okay, so so recombination is is basically the fact that you deviate from the current order and assortment of all your genes and alleles, and you start uh, mixing them up um, in a in a relatively controlled fashion, um, and that is costly basically because you don't quite know what the end result will do. Uh, so it's basically an uncertainty cost. Uh, there's all kinds of ways how this cost can play out depending on uh, there's all kinds of technical terms like epistatic interruptions and so on. But essentially, I would call it in a sort of popularized manner, I would call it that it's a jump into a pool where you have no idea what's going to happen. And of course, that's the whole point that I was also talking about the adaptive thing that it might be that you create the best ever combination that way, but you might also create um, not. Yeah, so you're sort of magnifying the variance, and so you might hit the lottery jackpot and have a real Mm -hmm. winner, or you might break up combinations of genes that are really good, and you may pay an enormous price for that, right? Exactly. And, and of course, the, the problem is that even if you create the jackpot, you know, it's going to break up again in the next generation. So yeah, right. Short-term it's, jackpot. It's, it's, well, it's, that's I, right. You know, we use too much jargon in this field, but I love the, the term that comes along with that, genetic slippage. That's such a such an interesting mm-hmm. word. I mean, we don't need to go yeah. through and deconstruct it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a nice, once you understand the phenomenon, it's a good it's a good word. It, it is nice. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's uh, Yeah, you, you're sort of trying to adapt and you just yeah. keep slipping down the hill okay. or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, Art, I, uh, I, I wanna, I'm ready to do the sort of the, the question that we usually end with, but yeah. is there anything else that you wanted to, to go through? No, I was mm-hmm. thinking it was perfect time for that. Okay, uh. okay. So, <laughs> so, Hannah, we always mm-hmm. ask our guests to um, give us their sort of, well, you, you push the envelope as far as you'd like, but your sort of big picture vision, next step forward, either empirically or theoretically, uh, mm-hmm. with regard to sex, so the, the next experiment or the thing that's on the horizon that gets you really excited, what might that be? Mm. Okay, so so one thing that bugs me quite a bit, and this is actually not a new question, it has been asked earlier, but it's the the idea that sex tends to associate with going through a single cell bottleneck. Uh, like, you know, we produce these babies and even though the baby comes out as a big organism, it goes through as a zygote stage. And um, on the other hand, asex often comes in kind of like, not 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 in necessarily the kind of like, you know, let's, let's just produce one cell um, and then from that grows an entire new copy of uh, yourself, even though that can happen as well, like in the Daphnia. But it can also go in, if you think about lichens, they can just sort of break off bits and they can create new um, organisms by, or, or, you know, even your familiar strawberry can do a bit of this, the, form these mm-hmm. runners, which are vegetative forms of reproduction. So if you think about it very flexibly, why is it actually that it's the asexual forms that do this kind of like continual growth from the parent or maybe breaking off a bit. Um, even sea stars can reproduce that way. And then when you go for sex, you go through this, the entire development has to sort of start from um, this one uh, kind of like, almost like primordial, uh, one little, little cell. Um, and I think intuitively that has to do something with the the kind of like, you know, the variances that we have been talking about and how, how many copies of possibly mutated cells do you want to carry with you into how many little bits do you divide your reproductive effort. And it even links mm-hmm. to things like cancer mm-hmm. as a biological phenomenon, uh, because if there are, if you go for very many bits um, that stick together and then start forming the next organism, it might be that some of the cells are not quite as intact as the others, and then you you sort of manage the risk in a different way. Um, so all these sort of cancer and aging and sex and asex, they they all somehow link together as a really big field, which I think is fascinating. Wow, that was big. <laughs> that <laughs> That's was a big. Lot yeah, I'm having a hard time wrapping yeah. my head around it. One thing I'm not sure that this is necessarily relevant, but it is something that in reading your paper um, came up. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an argument for the evolution of the adaptive immune system. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Why it exists is simply that it evolved, that it showed up in the first place, and that once mm-hmm. it did, 
it was too difficult to make it go away because the sort of the mechanism of the type of protection that it provided sort of provided a, it was a different form of battle against the enemies that had never been seen before and there was just no mm-hmm. way to to get back from that is there is there anything to be said for sex in that way and maybe in the light of what you were talking about once you've made the commitment to go down the route uh, right, of being yeah, yeah, sexual yeah. Yeah, you know I, you I can't see, you can't really do anything yeah. else yeah, except that sometimes organisms try. And, yeah. you know, that, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> they, really exactly why uh, I thought but, that they but, were going to fall apart. Suddenly, it, it doesn't fall apart completely because I actually do believe in that um, to, to a great extent. And particularly, and, but here we're t- particularly talking about sex with males. Um, as I keep reminding people, mm-hmm. there's all mm-hmm. kinds of ways of sexuality that don't necessarily have the male-female distinction. Um, and if you are... So my argument would be that if you enjoy the benefits of sex and you're an organism that doesn't yet have the males and then males evolve as in a sperm producing specialist evolves then it might be that you sort of get locked into the system where the costs of sex are increasing because a lot of costs of sex are increasing once you have males in the system but you're already your your body is kind of expecting uh, the whole reproductive system is expecting that you know sex happens in every generation and in that case, it's kind of tough that you have all these males around now. But, you know, what you do, you're also locked into the benefits and you diversify mm-hmm. a lot and we get all this wonderful diversity around us. I think it's an interesting idea, certainly. I mean, we mm-hmm. have put it forward as a, as a verbal model in one of the papers. <laughs> um, time will tell how right we were there. Let me ask one more question. Um, so obviously the molecular revolution and the rise of, of things like evolutionary genetics has had a profound impact on mm-hmm. how we study phenotypes in many different organisms. Um, is, there, mm-hmm. is that having a big impact on this field of the evolution of sex? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the um, evolution biology in general um, is such a wonderful field to work in because so many different approaches interact. Um, and myself, I'm not a genomic mm-hmm. person at all, um, but I... <laughs> They're hard to and, avoid. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And uh, what I find totally fascinating is that there's this whole continuum of ways of investigation that um, I think truly are talking to each other. Um, and um, each approach feeds, in the best possible worlds at least, uh, they're sort of feeding to each other. So if people start seeing that approach as complementary to the others and not be dismissive towards, you know, the sort of muddy boots biology and uh, theoreticians and, you know, whatnot. Uh, We all inform the same question from different angles, and I think it's beautiful. Most of us probably think that we humans are pretty typical when it comes to sex. But in nature, you can find all kinds of alternatives to our strategy. Sex is far from simple. The majority of life on Earth is asexual. Microbes like the bacteria and archaea simply make identical copies of themselves by splitting apart. But even large organisms, like many fish and lizards, have sex in really different ways than we do. This diversity excites evolutionary biologists like Hannah Coco. She recently charted some of that diversity and why it might exist on her website. We'll provide a link to that on our website, bigbiology.org. It's still not quite clear why sex exists at all, and when there is sex, why it sometimes has to be so complicated. Hannah's approach to figuring it out is to combine mathematical theory with experiments in the lab and field. The hope in the end is to have one unified theory that resolves the paradox of sex. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you liked it, please think about donating to the podcast so that we can keep the episodes coming. The easiest way to do that is through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. There you can set up a monthly donation to our show, which helps us pay writers, buy software, and host live events like the one we just did in Missoula, Montana. In Missoula, we talked with John McCutcheon, an evolutionary biologist who studies bacteria and fungi that live in symbiosis with cicadas and beetles. Here's a quick preview. So if you, if you take a look inside of a cicada, and if you catch one and you cut it open from, cut it open from head to abdomen and look, look in, a, in a female at least, uh, above the ovaries there's two paired organs. And in, in cicadas it looks like a bunch of grapes like you get at the store. And th- that bunch of grapes is the bacterium. They're little balls, and those balls are 
full of insect cells, and each one of those insect cells is stuffed full of bacteria. So the bacteria are literally inside the They're living cells. inside these insect cells. Thanks for listening today. And thanks to Matt Boyce for writing and production help on the episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage our social media channels. And Steve Lane manages the website. We also want to thank the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>